0: By the way, uh, it wasn't Carter persuading me to come here. It was me persuading Carter to see if he could get an invitation for me to come here because I really wanted to get to know Columbus, Ohio. That may strike you as an odd thing to say, but foreign correspondents are always curious about places in the world where they have never been. And I won't bore you with the conversation last night, but I talked uh, to Carter a good deal last night about what I'd heard about Columbus being this, um, this city in the Midwest which had taken on a certain kind of cosmopolitan um, mean and, and I really wanted to discover it and I said that to Carter and Carter took it from there so, so thank you for accepting my invitation to bring myself <laughs> to Columbus, Ohio um, I've worked in offices uh, that looked out over Pennsylvania Avenue in the White House and that were created overnight in a lean-to in a, in a volcano in El Salvador that was a guerrilla camp Um, I've covered reindeer herders in the Arctic Circle of Norway, where the temperature was 45 degrees below zero. Um, And I've also covered vendettas between warring families in the middle of Brazil um, in an area of the parched wasteland where the thermometer tops 100 degrees every day. Um, In Rio, I had a postcard view of Guanabara Bay and Sugarloaf Mountain, And I occupied space in a building in London for eight years that was just across St. James's Park with Buckingham Palace on one side and number 10 Downing Street and the Foreign Office on the other. The years I spent as the assistant managing editor overseeing the cultural coverage of the New York Times, my office gave out onto Schubert Alley, which is this very romantic spot right in the middle of the Broadway Theater District. Now as chief of the newspaper's United Nations Bureau, I have an office in that iconic steel and glass tower with a view out over the East River. Now, that doesn't sound as exotic and interesting, uh, a place to check out the world as the others I've just mentioned, but it actually has turned out to be a pretty compelling vantage point. Uh, Even if I'm spending most of my time now not exploring the corners of the globe, but wandering around a building filled with the striped trousers crowd, but let me take you first inside that building, because that's a story also. Uh, the famous Secretariat Tower that was built by an international consortium of architects, including some really great architects, Le Corbusier, Oscar Niemeyer, Wallace K. Harrison. It is absolutely one of New York's, if not this country's um, greatest buildings. It's an alluring mix of a sleek post-war design uh, with a, uh, just a heavy dose of Art Deco ornamentalism. It is also the most unsafe building in New York City. Um, That's because it's still exactly the way it was when it was finished in 1952. That's 55 years ago, Um, which is why, for instance, the United Nations has its own machine shop. When parts break in the bowels of the United Nations, there are no parts to replace them because companies ceased making those parts decades ago. So the UN has to actually make its own spare parts. And also what happens when a part breaks, they have on record there about 10 industrial museums around the world that are bidding for those parts. And when they get them, they put them in a glass case as an artifact from the past ages. <laughs> those are the parts that keep the United Nations, where I work every, every day, um, running. Um, when I first arrived um, at the UN, and was desperately trying to find something amusing to write about this starchy place, I wrote a story about all this, about the insides of that building. And I talked to the general foreman, a real blunt spoken New Yorker named Tony Raymond. And I said to him, I said, how can a building uh, that doesn't even have sprinklers on the ceiling that breaks every single building code still be standing in New York City? And he said, the day it opened, it met the codes. <laughs> In that story, I compared Raymond's crew of people who keep the creaking old U.N. running to those those amateur mechanics in Cuba who keep all those Dodges and Oldsmobiles rattling around the streets of Havana. These guys are really inventive because they've got nothing modern to work with, and they still somehow keep that that building patched together. Um, You have to have a dark sense of humor to work inside the United Nations building. There is a room on the 28th floor that's a real hot room, like a radioactive room. It's got dangerous machinery in there. And when I was up there one day, I asked one of the secretaries, I said, how do you possibly get people to work in the vicinity of that room? And she said, remember I said, dark sense of humor. She said, we make sure that the women who work here have already had their children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> dark sense of humor. Um, so how outdated is the UN? The door, and you may have to be a New Yorker uh, to get this story, but... Um, On the door of that room I just described is a big thunderbolt design and a sign that says DANGER in gigantic letters. It says DANGER HIGH VOLTAGE. Then it says, in case of necessity, call Murray Hill 24477. (laughs) That exchange has not existed for 40 years. Um, But what goes on inside the, the UN's historic halls and meeting rooms is actually right up to date. And that's why it's made it a much better place, uh, subject, subject to cover than I imagined three and a half years ago, when I arrived there after nearly eight years in London and decades in some of those far-flung places I mentioned at the very beginning. Uh, now, I had to make a confession going in here. I'm an old-fashioned daily newspaper guy, and I literally feel about 25% happier about myself On a day that my byline is in the New York Times, I don't care if anyone reads it. I don't even care if it's a good story. Just the knowledge that my name is in there makes my walk to the front door of my apartment in the morning 25% happier, and that 25% lasts sort of through the entire day. Um, uh, I think I was talking with some friends here about what's happening tomorrow. I'm going back tonight, and there's something very early tomorrow happening at the UN, and I suspect... I will be writing a story for the Thursday New York Times, so you can be sure that Thursday morning uh, when I go to the door of my apartment in New York, I'm going to be 25% happier. Actually, I'm pretty happy right now because I'm enjoying coming to a strange place. But anyway, um, that's a confession of an old-fashioned hack. Um, I love the daily story. Happily for me, there have been many such days like that since I arrived at the United Nations, approximately 200 a year. That's almost every other day, or it's more than every other day. Um, there were so many things going on at the UN last summer, not this just past one, but a year ago, um, that on the eve of my going to join my family on the beaches of Spain, I got a phone call from the editor of the New York Times saying, I hate to do this to you, but I have to ask you to give up your vacation. There's just too much going on at the UN. There was the war in Lebanon. There was, um, there was North Korea, nuclear proliferation. There was Iran, there was Darfur. Uh, The UN was central to all these things, and it meant that there would be a story every single day. And so the UN correspondent had to call his wife that night and say, I'm actually not coming tomorrow. Uh, We'll do that next year. Um, So while I was sorry um, for the fact that I had to give up that vacation, I was secretly pleased that the place had become so newsworthy that I had to stay. I should tell you, I've now reached an age and a level of experience that when the boss calls, surprisingly, it usually isn't to say, will you please stay? Usually it's to say, what are you still doing here? So that was the second reason why I took that phone call and said, absolutely, I will stay. Um, now in covering the UN, I don't attack it and I don't defend it, I just cover it. Um, I have to say with its tarnished reputation, particularly among Americans, I've sometimes found that if I say something absolutely neutral and non-judgmental about the United Nations. People accuse me of of sticking up for the place. Um, I will go so far as to say just this, that even in its mismanaged and flawed state, about which I've written much, uh, I think it or something like it has to exist. There are proposals to do away with it. There are proposals for the United States to leave it, or proposals to float the whole thing off to France, and they all strike me as non-starters. Uh, in the globalized world of today, the suggestions for the alternatives just don't work. And we've actually had two of them just in the past week from two candidates for president. Mitt Romney last week proposed what he called a coalition of free nations to replace the UN. And John McCain had a little different thing. He said a coalition of democracies. Um, well, Russia and China are neither democratic nor uh, Are they free? So I can't get my mind around the idea of an international organization that would not have China and Russia as members accomplishing anything on the world stage. I should mention that Romney was spot on in singling out what is the most shameful part of the United Nations, and that's the Human Rights Council. It's based in Geneva, and uh, it is just simply indefensible. It is a collection of countries many of them with atrocious rights records of their own, who join this council so that their rights records won't be examined. And they do nothing but pass resolutions condemning Israel. They passed eight resolutions last year, all eight condemned Israel. But it's too simplistic, I think, for Romney to tar the entire organization, which he did uh, with the record of the council, because the council is just simply the worst single indefensible part of the United Nations. And UN leaders themselves have excoriated the Council. Kofi Annan said it brought discredit on the whole organization. Um, In general, though, the UN has never been as discredited as it has been in recent years, and I think paradoxically never as important. Uh, Remember my brief anecdote about my, my summer vacation I had to give up. The UN was at the center of all those major world events. Americans, many Americans, have always viewed the organization with mistrust, They see it as an obstacle to U.S. interests and a constraint on U.S. power. The scandal of the oil for food program, combined with the anger of the Bush administration at the U.N.'s failure to legitimize the war in Iraq, made for a really toxic brew that poisoned relations between the United Nations and Washington. Now, some of this was justified, but some of it was politically motivated and opinionated parts of the American press did not distinguish themselves in sorting out which was which. Simply put, the UN found itself in the middle of the highly polarized American political debate with all the attendant media hype and its reputation, the reputation of its Secretary General Kofi Annan, suffered real damage. It's a distant memory now that after his first term in office, Mr. Annan won the Nobel Peace Prize and was, was thought at that point to be the best secretary general since Dag Hammarskjöld. That didn't last because of the last two or three years of his tenure. Uh, the cost of the entire U.N. system is about $20 billion, or in New York terms, according to a Kennedy school um, at Harvard study recently, less than the annual bonuses paid out in a good year on Wall Street. That same study said the secretariat in New York accounts for just under $2 billion and said that was less than uh, the budget of major universities. I checked out the Ohio State number, and Ohio State's annual budget is $3.7 billion. Um, uh, $7 billion goes to peacekeeping, and the rest, more than half of it, is spent on the specialized agencies like the High Commission for Refugees, the World Food Programme, the World Health Organization, that do pretty non-controversial work, but you don't read about that. Now, created to put an end to wars, the United Nations had the original concept of collective security by which states would band together to punish aggressors. Now, it failed during the Cold War years in which the U.S. and the Soviet Union basically canceled each other out. It worked in 1991 after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, Uh, did not work in 1999 in Kosovo, or 2003, notably, in Iraq, where countries took on the responsibilities themselves without UN backing. Despite its difficulties in the second half of Mr. Annan's tenure, however, I think the UN is more consequential than ever before, and a lot of that has to do with the 100,000 people in 18 peacekeeping missions, and that number doesn't count the Combined African Union-United Nations Force, which is about to go into Darfur, um, which will be the largest force in the history of peacekeeping. Peacekeeping was not even part of the original UN idea. It was something that Dog Hammarskjöld invented. To put this in national security terms, which I think is a, a, a wise way of approaching some objections to the UN, peacekeeping is a way of dealing with, quote, failed states, and failed states are so-called breeding grounds for terrorism, and therefore a real security concern for Western nations. With the UN peacekeepers there, countries like European countries and the United States can accomplish that mission much less expensively and much more effectively than they had to use their own troops. Just imagine for a second if we were sending American or French or British troops into places like Sierra Leone or Liberia, or um, Uganda or Congo. I'm thinking of places where civil wars have been brought to an end and peacekeeping forces are. Um, The general argument for the UN's relevance is that there are more and more problems now that know no borders. Uh, The list is an easy one. Terrorism, climate change, international crime, poverty, migration, public health, security, trade. The UN now is also central to a current debate among internationalists uh, and it, 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 it sets two contradictory principles against each other. And reconciling these two principles is really sort of the business of the UN right now. The first one is the sovereign independence of the nation state, which took on a certain sort of sanctity in the 20th century. And the other one that's sort of in conflict with it is what Kofi Annan called the, quote, responsibility to protect, unquote. And what that means is it is the world or the United Nations saying, if you don't protect your own people, we, the outside world, will step in to save their lives. Think Darfur. Think Myanmar. Those two principles in conflict, and the UN is where it's being played out. Um, Now, in much of the developing world, and I should say that's become the battle now at the UN. It used to be the Cold War. Now it's the developing world, versus the developed world. And it's fought every day at the UN. In much of that developing world, there is a suspicion that the latter idea, the idea that you can step in when a country is killing and harming its own people. uh, I mentioned Darfur, I could mention Zimbabwe. um, uh, They think that that notion will basically empower the major powers, give them a blank check to intervene. And remember that President Bashir of Sudan, when the United Nations first proposed sending troops in there, said he wouldn't have them because it would be a violation of his sovereignty. Uh, He still is insisting that the joint force that's being planned right now be all African. Uh, There's a third world feeling, and you hear this a lot at the UN, that the advance of globalization is basically a policy promoted by the West to recolonize all those countries that gained their independence. Last August, though, I caught a glimpse of what the UN can and should be. Uh, I accompanied Kofi Annan on a trip through 11 um, Middle Eastern countries. Actually, there were a couple of European countries in that mix, but it was nine Middle Eastern countries and two countries in Europe. Uh, This was a trip at the the end. Hostilities had, had ended in the war in Lebanon, but Israel still had a blockade around Lebanon. Lebanon basically could not function while that blockade uh, stayed there. So Kofi Annan set out on a trip, which went, by the way, to Iran and Syria um, to try to bring an end to that blockade. And he succeeded. Um, I remember watching him on the plane. There were only five correspondents on that plane with him. He, this was his last trip, and he picked the five he wanted. It was myself, Financial Times, it was Le Monde, it was El Pais of Spain, and it was a... a man named Jean-Pierre Escabeche, who's sort of the Walter Cronkite of France. And, um, and so we had a really intimate view of Kofi Annan at work, and he was on the phone as this plane flew around those capitals talking to Jacques Chirac, talking to Ramona Prady, um doing something that a UN Secretary General can do. All a Secretary General has is influence. There, no battalions, no army, no real power, but, but influence, the influence of trying to convince national leaders to somehow resolve differences. Um, When I got back from that trip, I wrote an analysis that said, in part, this is the kind of trip that American secretaries of state used to make. Do you remember? Remember Henry Kissinger? Remember Warren Christopher? Remember Dennis Ross? Uh, Not a secretary of state, but a longtime mediator. You always had an American in the middle there. And what was behind that was uh, uh, an agreement, and I remember this very well at the time, that even the, the worst enemies of the United States believed that there was only one country in the world which could ever broker peace in the Middle East, and that country was the United States. Um, so, so when I got back, I said, this is the kind of trip that U.S. secretaries of state used to make, but this time it was a U.N. secretary general making it. And behind that comment was an impression I've gained from recent trips to the region, to the Middle Eastern region. That the U.S. is now at its lowest point of international prestige and influence that I have seen in 30 years of being a foreign correspondent. Um, Those of us who experienced 9-11 abroad had a following kind of experience, my experience. On September 12th, I was on the streets of London and I was talking with a friend And people passing by, this is London, where people don't usually step out and start to speak, you know, without being invited to speak. People hearing my accent interrupted my conversation with somebody, some of them with tears in their eyes. One of them hugged me, something you don't encounter very often on a British street, (laughs) basically saying, um, we love you, Americans, we are with you. You'll all remember the famous headline of Le Monde, of all places, nous sommes tous américains. It was an extraordinary moment, particularly since I had spent five years in Latin America at a time when Latins held the United States responsible for all the military dictatorships they were living under. I knew what anti-Americanism was and that was sort of normal for me. I had never experienced pro-Americanism and it was wonderful while it lasted, um, which unfortunately was not very long. Um, And that brings me to the subject of the United States and the United Nations. Um, It is, whether we like it or anybody else likes it or not, the most uh, important single relationship the United Nations has. It just is a simple fact. If the United States is in there and pitching and involved with the United Nations, the United Nations is much more effective by a factor of 5 or 10. Pick your number. And, And the contrary thing is true, I also think, and I think the Bush administration now realizes this but did not at first, that the United States actually can advance its policies in many cases better if it has United Nations agreement or backing rather than opposition of the United Nations. Um, Let me tell you a quick story involving two dates. Uh, The first date is November 15th, 2003. On that date, uh, uh, L. Paul Bremer IV, a college classmate of Carter's and mine at Yale, uh, we know him as Jerry Bremer, um, you'll remember him, he was, the, he was the viceroy. He was the man in charge of the coalition provisional authority uh, in Iraq. He and a guy called Ayad Alawi, who was a sort of passing prime minister at that point, head of the interim Iraqi government. This is the time when we were completely an occupation force and Iraq had no sovereign rights of its own. November fifteenth, two 2003, they drew up a transition plan for the election to happen six months later. Uh, in June of 2004, and you'll remember those elections because those elections were the elections that returned sovereignty to Iraq. And those elections are cited by the Bush administration office, as one of, often as one of his proudest accomplishments of, of the war in Iraq. Um, November 15, 2003, the document is drawn up. The two words United Nations are nowhere in that document. I arrived there a month later in December of 2003 to a profoundly depressed place. The United Nations basically had been banished and excluded from the most important international conflagration uh, in the world at that moment. Um, The second date is January 15, 2004, exactly two months after the first date. Uh, Jerry Bremer and Ayan Alawi were at the front door of the United Nations. What had happened was... Now, you may remember this. Um, the, the Coalition revision Authority proposed an election scheme. It was a caucus-based scheme. It's sort of funny to think about that now in the, in the season we're in right now with Iowa, I guess about a month away. It was a caucus-based election idea, which was an attempt, apparently a pretty lame one, to bring all the minorities uh, together in a vote. And the most important Shiite in the country, a man called Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, came out of his house in Najaf and said, this won't fly, it's unacceptable. Sistani does not talk to the Americans and has never talked to him and said he would not talk to them. The Americans were suddenly stuck with an election scheme, the most important thing on their calendar at that point, which the leading Shiite in the country had said, we won't go for this. And who could they go to to get this thing right? That's why Jerry Bremer and Ayatollah, we were at the front door of the United Nations two months after drawing up a transition document which excluded the UN um, uh, from any involvement in Iraq. Now, the UN, one of the things the UN does very well, nobody criticizes for this, is they run elections in very conflicted places. Uh, For those of you who know that part of the world, um, East Timor in 1999, there was a war going on, and elections were held there, free elections, which elected uh, a prime minister and a president. And the, U- the UN, it was the UN that conducted them. Uh, they were under fire at the time. So um, what happened this time was the UN received the call, help us with these elections, and they assigned two senior people, one guy called Lakhtar Brahimi, who is a former Algerian foreign minister and a longtime troubleshooter and an extraordinary international um, figure, and a woman named Karina Parelli. Bra- Brahimi is Algerian. Karina Parelli is a Uruguayan. She was the head of the election unit at the United Nations. Together they went to Iraq, they laid out the plan, and the election was held. It was successfully. It was successful, as I said, the Bush administration boasted about it. And in a moment that all of us at the UN will never forget and made us all fall about, uh, the president of the United States, who has not often had a good word to say about the UN, <laughs> singled out the UN for praise for having pulled this off, and singled out... Those two people I just mentioned, lakhtar Brahimi and Karina Pirelli, and what made us all fall about was he pronounced their names correctly. <laughs> um, two other names to throw at you, John Bolton and Zalmay Khalilzad. Uh, John Bolton, the former United Nations Ambassador, United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Zalmay Khalilzad, the former Ambassador to Iraq who now is the UN Ambassador. Um, Bolton came to the job with a, with a disdainful attitude that he publicly stated uh, about the United Nations. You'll remember the famous comment, take ten floors off the top of the building, nobody would know the difference. Um, Khalilzad, uh, who is Afghan-born and is Muslim, um, came to the job and on his very first day uh, said very different sounding things uh, about the United Nations. And it was interesting what he said because he said, I know the United Nations from the field. And I guess one point I mean to make to you is the United Nations looks pretty bad when you look at the organization in New York. Uh, there is a crying need still for an overhaul of that management. There is some corruption, not nearly as much as was alleged before, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, but uh, it's, it's not a pretty sight, and that's what John Bolton attacked uh, with reason. Zalmay Khalilzad talked about the United Nations, of peacekeepers, of World Health Organization. He had seen the, them act in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and had a very different impression or idea of how the United Nations might be uh, um, an organization that could help advance American interests rather than, than hinder them. Um, at the time that I was um, covering the UN and John Bolton was the ambassador. Everybody kept saying to me, how's he doing? How's he doing? Is it true that this and that? And I've got to tell you, as a reporter, you always listen to what people ask you about the beach you're covering because that tells you what they want to know. And it was a particularly difficult thing for me to do because I covered it very closely closely. Um, uh, John Bolton was extremely public and very emphatic, and I wrote about him every day and recorded what he said. I also knew, because I know many people at the UN, other ambassadors, um, that, that the act was not going down too well, and, and I, but I couldn't, I'm not a columnist, I'm a reporter, so I, I couldn't really say what I thought, I had to say what they thought, and so what I decided to do was to take the priority that John Bolton had described as the U.S. number one goal, which was overhauling the management of the United Nations, uh, a movement which he led, and to sort of measure how he did in the eyes of the other ambassadors. And I don't mean ambassadors of countries that don't like us. I picked only countries that not only are allies of the United States, but that shared um, the interest in reforming the place. Nobody doubts. Um, and nobody from from what you would consider sort of the Western world, the established world, and that now includes many, many Asian nations and South American nations, um, nobody quarrels with the notion that the UN has to become more uh, efficient, um, more transparent, more accountable. Um, so John Bolton led the move for that. I talked to these ambassadors. I talked to 33 of them um, over a six- or seven-week period and wrote a piece in the end of July a year ago. Um, which preceded by a week, I didn't mean for this to happen this way, but it turned out that way. A week later John Bolton went before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and he ended up being asked lots of questions that came out of this article, uh, which did not exactly endear him to me in the end. But the point I'm trying to make to you was I was not writing my own personal opinion, I was taking the words and judgments. of of other ambassadors. And their responses broke down three ways. Their response uniformly was, John Bolton has been a bad leader of the UN reform movement. And that movement has not accomplished much, largely because Bolton's leadership has has set it back. The three groups were people who simply said what I just said now, who said, you know, we, we did all we could to help him. We signed on to all the things he's told us to but his confrontational manner just seems not to have been the right way to go about this. The second group in the middle, and it was about a third, a third, a third, said his action actually undermined um, the, uh, the effort Uh, and and really set it back. And the only reason why it did not succeed, by this I mean reform. There were a series of reform proposals, rather basic ones, about restructuring the UN. They almost all failed. And this second group said, of ambassadors who are our absolute best friends, if I could say the countries, uh, you would, I mean, think of people who vote with us always, who share our values and our purposes. Um, These people said, the middle group said, and uh, undermined the effort. There was a third group. And in this group, there was, I wish I could say the countries, I mean, countries that are so close to us. Um, um, four or five of these ambassadors said um, he betrayed us. Uh, we don't think he ever meant to reform the UN. We think he meant to undermine it. I should say John Bolton did himself no favors with the United Nations because what he would do in the evenings would be to go off and address conservative Republican groups and assail the UN as being unreformable. Uh, Let's just get out of there. And then he would go back to the UN the next day and portray himself as the leader of this reform movement to try to make the UN better. Um, he also would go to Washington every weekend and get Republican congressmen to hold meetings, and, and, and then he would come back to the U.N., and he would lecture the U.N. on how Congress is not going to stand for any more of this uh, shilly-shallying, you've got to change yourself completely or else Congress is going is to recommend withdrawing monies from the U.N. It's, um, it's an odd strategy, and it didn't work. Um, So I was able to write a story based on the comments of these ambassadors. Now, I wasn't able to name any of them, because obviously no ambassador is going to say on the record what he thinks about another ambassador, but I was able to portray them. I was able to quote what they said. I was able to portray their responses the way I just had the three groups, and I was able to say emphatically, in every single case, they were from countries that that were as eager as the United States was to reform the United Nations. Um, Jump to June of this year and Zalmay Khalilzad has arrived. You may remember John Bolton was unable to gain, John Bolton was a recess appointment. He was there for a year and a half because when he couldn't get confirmation, uh, when Congress adjourned, uh, President Bush is on recess appointment. Recess appointments end at the end of every Congress. So John Bolton set out a year and a half ago to become confirmed by the Senate. And, um, And that hearing I mentioned before Had a lot to do with why he did not get confirmed. When they realized he would not get confirmation, there were not enough members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to report it out. um, He withdrew basically and resigned the post. And Lakhdar Brahimi, excuse me, Zalmay Khalilzad came. Um, In June, there was a dinner party. And let me tell you, there are a lot of dinner parties around the U.N., and I wish I didn't have to go to as many of them as I do. But this one was a lot of fun. This was given by the South African ambassador, a guy called Dumisani Kumala, who's a great master of ceremonies figure. And he had, and it was to welcome Zalmay Khalilzad. Now, Khalilzad, I should tell you, is a terrific looking guy. He is, he's a former athlete. He was a, a high school basketball star at Kabul High School in Afghanistan. And if you, if you, I mean, ath- athletes, even 20 years after they've been on the field, kind of move with a certain ease and confidence, and that's the way he moves through the corridors. He smiles constantly. He's a glad hander. It's a very, very different approach than people were used to from John Bolton. Um, and um, at this dinner, uh, uh, the, the ambassador of South Africa was speaking about Khalilzad, and they had just gone to Sudan together on Khalilzad's first week in, in the end of May. <clears throat> Security Council went off to Sudan, to Darfur, and, and Kumalo was talking about what a great guy he was, how much fun they had. I, in the story I wrote about it, it was like he was talking about his best friend at summer camp. It was like that. And then he passed the microphone around to the different tables around the room at which there was an ambassador of a major country. And he said to them, he said, I'll, you know, say something about Khalilzav. And all of them had comments that had a second meaning. Uh, It was, and I repeated these in a story I wrote about it. Um, I mean, they would say things like, a breath of fresh air. Well, that implies that there's something else before. (laughs) Or they would say, one one ambassador, the Panamanian ambassador, who's now on the Security Council, said, the message may be the same, but the delivery is so different. Every single comment was like that. And then Khalilzad himself got up to speak in response. And he said, well, I can tell from your comments that the smartest thing I have done is having chosen my predecessor. <laughs> <laughs> so there you had it. Um, uh, I wrote a profile of Khalilzad in which I used that example, and it was a way of them saying uh, they liked this approach better than the approach before, and I didn't have to say it, even though I might agree with them. And I maintain my reputation as a reporter, not a columnist. Um, I should say something about those ambassadors. One of the good things about the United Nations is most countries send their best diplomats there. There's, a, there's a, 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 an off-trod path where the United Nations ambassadorship is the step just before becoming foreign minister. I was talking before about Sergei Lavrov, now the foreign minister of Russia and a very, very powerful, influential man on the world scene, was until three years ago the United Nations ambassador from Russia. Um, uh, Ahmed Abdul-Gate of Egypt saying, now Foreign Minister was at the UN. Um, by and large, the ambassadors from, excuse me, from the big countries, the important countries, are extremely good. And, and that makes the beat more interesting, particularly of Foreign Affairs, we what you really care about. I mean, the, the conversation level, I mean, there is such frustration at the UN at how long it takes things to get done that sometimes you lose sight of the fact that there are some very practiced diplomats uh, working there. And, and that there's some richness um, there to be tapped. Um, I mentioned before the divisions at divisions the UN now are really the developed and the developing world. And this whole reform thing is highly suspect. And one mistake I think that John Bolton made was um, he kept pointing up the fact that the United States, the correct fact, that the United States is the biggest payer at the UN. The United States pays 22% of the budget. Um, To the African countries who value the United Nations more than they value any institution in the world because it's the one place they feel they have equality with the big guys, the former colonized nations can talk back to the colonizers. Um, Bolton kept saying we pay more therefore we should have a bigger voice and that was just profoundly insulting to the African nations. I was there, I saw it in committee meetings. If there was ever a chance for these nations to accept the notion of reform, which as I said before was already a suspect as some kind of corporate American model, that just damned it from the start because they would never agree to a notion that we've got to pay more attention to the U.S. because it spends more money here than we are able to. Um, uh, I think I may be repeating myself here, just a simple fact. The United Nations spends 70% of its time on Africa, which is another reason why uh, the Africans care about it so much. And just one other anecdote to illustrate that. You remember a year ago right now, at the opening of the General Assembly when world leaders come, uh, and they all speak in the General Assembly. um, uh, We've just had Ahmadinejad, uh, that show, Uh, Last year, in addition to Ahmadinejad, Hugo Chavez came from Venezuela. I think you'll remember the incident. He took the rostrum the day after President Bush was in the same place. And he said, ah, the devil was here yesterday. And he said, I can still smell the sulfur coming up from under the rostrum. And um, they loved it at the UN. Look, there is no way to get a better audience sort of laughing with you and applauding with you than to beat up on the United States. That's just standard issue at the United Nations. What's more interesting is Venezuela, two months later, tried to become a member of the Security Council. All of us who cover the UN believed they had it in the bag, and this would have been pretty much a disaster. When you get a country like that, like a Venezuela, like a Cuba at one time, like a Libya. Libya is now going on the Security Council, but it's a different Libya. Uh, when you get a Country like the Security Council, it, it, its, its ability to tie up the work of that council, which is important, would just be infinite. So the United States had a big interest in making sure that Venezuela did not get on, but we all thought they were going to get on, and they didn't. And it went through 47 ballots. It was Guatemala versus Venezuela for the Latin seat. On the 48th ballot, they both withdrew and Panama became the compromise candidate. But the reason I mention it right now is I talked to ambassadors at that point, Africans and some Latin Americans, about why they weren't going for Chavez. After all, he's doing what you want him to kicking, kicking the U.S., embarrassing the U.S. at the U.N., but well, that's usually a popular stance here. And numbers of them said to me, and I wrote at the time, they were angry at him for staging a clown act in, at the United Nations. Um, don't screw around with this place, basically, was, was the message, because we care about this place. And, and you are profaning something that we consider a sacrosanct by doing that, uh, that burlesque that you did here, which delighted us on the day, but the aftertaste was pretty bad. Because Chavez did that, uh, they lost their role. And you may have seen Chavez did not come this year. He sent his foreign minister and said. Um, just an illustration. of of what the United Nations means to a part of the world which feels it gets no representation elsewhere and how it seems to make sense to me without expressing too much of an opinion that it would be in the American interest to try to play to that rather than to confront it and combat it. Um, A secretary general, with every naming of a secretary general, you always have the same question. Is he a secretary? Is he a general? Um, uh, When Kofi Annan was named, uh, Kofi Annan being an insider, head of peacekeeping, had been at the UN for 30 years, uh, he was expected, particularly by the United States, to be a secretary and not to make uh, trouble. Um, He became much more of a general than Washington ever wanted him to be. Um, So um, we get to Ban Ki-moon, the new secretary general. Um, I um, have known him uh, In in New York, I do a lot of presenting of people at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is this hoary, I mean, H-O-A-R-Y, hoary establishment place uh, in New York. And I presented Mr. Bond uh, in the end of May as he was running for office, And, and, uh, and it was just terrible. After he got, it was I was on stage with him. I introduced him. Then he made a speech. Then I sat in the sofa here, and he in the sofa there. I asked him questions. Then I opened it to the floor. Uh, Nobody could hear him speak. He was so quiet. Um, He a bromide anodyne statement does not begin to describe how boring everything he said was. And when he was through, people in the room came up to me and said, "That guy can't possibly expect to be secretary general. You know who else is in the running?" And that was my first knowledge of Mr. Bond, anybody's first knowledge of Mr. Bond. Um, the Koreans came after me afterwards and said, will you help us, will you advise us? I said, I can't do that, that isn't what I do, but I am a reporter, I will tell you what people thought there, and I told them, and I said, you've got a problem. So over the three months in the summertime, he sharpened up his act. You know, you really campaign for Secretary General. I mean, your government makes deals in third-world countries to try to secure the vote, and you go out on the road and try to appear. He had been a foreign minister of South Korea, so he had been to many of these countries. And, um, and it just happened, coincidentally, that the Asian Society in September, three months later, asked me to present Mr. Bond to its membership. By this point, he was thought to be the favorite, to be the winner. And I remember... Um, when he appeared on stage he sort of said to me um, I hope this experience is better for you than the last one was and he was a completely changed character. Um, uh, he was telling jokes, he had raised his voice so people could hear him, he, he would gesture he had mannerisms and um, it's, he said to me in an interview I was eventually to do with him once he became secretary general um, he sort of said you know it's a bit of a cultural problem in North Asia public figures are not in the business of promoting themselves. That isn't how you, uh, t- to the contrary, rather than projecting yourself, you, you, you stand back, you bow, you, you're humble, you're, you, uh, you withhold. And, um, and he said to me, and this is a quote I put in a, in a profile of him, he said, don't mistake modesty for indecision. And I think it's a fair statement. And it was a little bit of a cultural lecture. Don't judge me only by Western standards. Though he had had to learn to, um, to promote himself by Western standards. After all, you're running for office in Africa, in Latin America, uh, and in Southeast Asia, where, where people are used to public figures getting up there and making speeches and projecting personality. And um, he has pretty much learned how to do that. I'll get back to that in a second. I think I've just lost my train here for a second. Um, he, um, the United States, he was very much the US candidate, and the US really hoped that he would be the guy to bring reform Um, After all, a South Korean foreign minister, efficient, crisp, buttoned down, um, not seeking as his predecessor did to go around the world making statements about international law. The U.S. thought they had their man. They thought they had a secretary, not a general. Ban has surprised us a bit because instead of addressing the problems inside the building, and by the way, he really hasn't, and the problems are immense. I mean, the, the unfinished business of U.N. reform is sitting out there and Mr. Bond is going to have to get to it at some point. But he's done something that has caught us by surprise and it's made it much more interesting. He has instead decided to be a character on the international stage and he declared at the beginning that his number one priority would be Darfur. Now that's an interesting choice because the Sudanese have a record equal only by the Iranians in defying the United Nations. So here this quiet-spoken, modest man faulted for not being um, impactful enough on the international stage said, my first job is going to be to solve uh, Darfur. Um, now, behind this kind of thinking, I just want to tell you, is a, is a formula that dogs the United Nations. And it goes like this, three parts. Gigantic expectations. Um, I picked off a clip yesterday in the office and I couldn't find it yesterday when I left my office. But basically, it was, a, it was about Pakistan. And it was quoting a Pakistani on the street of Karachi um, after the bombing of Benazir Bhutto's arrival, saying the UN ought to do something about this. That's typical. Great expectations. The easiest thing to say is the UN ought to take care of it. Um, great expectations. The middle part is limitations. It is 192 countries ruling by consensus. Boy, is that a difficult thing. I mean, all of us are on different size committees. I hope none of us are on a committee that large. You know how difficult it is. To get, and you're talking about nations, not just people from more or less the same society trying to make up their minds. Great expectations, limitations in the middle, and the result is disillusionment and disappointment. That It, it attends everything. In Darfur, it was the UN that first called attention to Darfur. It was the UN that was unable um, to get troops into Sudan because the Sudanese wouldn't let them in. And it is the UN that's now being blamed for inaction in the face of genocide. Uh, I'm not saying that's that's not an excuse, but it is an explanation, I think, of of the cycle you're caught up in. So in the middle of this formula, um, Mr. Bond decides really to put off the the house cleaning thing, and also he's made some appointments that have disappointed people there. He hasn't appointed a bunch of sort of management people to come to grips with this uh, this, uh, old bureaucracy. Instead, he decides uh, to... um, to do really what Kofi Annan used to do. Now, when Kofi Annan would walk in a room, it was, it was, uh, it was a Mandela moment. I mean, when he would walk in a room, uh, you knew the Secretary General of the United Nations was there. Whatever his, uh, his reputation suffered in this country. By the way, it was only in this country. If you ever traveled outside the United States, there's a very different attitude about the United Nations than there is inside, and, um, and, and about Kofi Annan also. But he was, he was recognized just as, and, and again... Secretary General has no power, so the, the presence is something very important. And along comes Mr. Bond, who I described to you was was is, is eminently ignorable in that first appearance at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, you know, people didn't ignore him; they just never wanted to see him again. Um, and when he was first in office, he took office on January first. Um, in the in the first months, I know from the people around him, he really suffered from criticism. He hadn't been used it, it, in Korean public life. Uh, I don't know the Korean press. I know the names of the papers. But I, uh, But apparently the, there's not a tradition there of really critical coverage of public affairs. So the fact that he, from the very start, uh, began to be criticized. I remember in the very first press conference asking him... A, very direct question about how possibly he could have made some of the top-level hires he made when it was evident he had never discussed the jobs with the people he chose. In a couple of cases, the people didn't even know they were under consideration. How can you, you know, there are banks on um, main streets in Ohio that have better screening processes than the United Nations had in place to, or than the Secretary General had to name the top people to a new administration. So, um, and he was stung by this criticism, and he really resented the contrast with Kofi Annan, uh, the globe-trotting rock star diplomat who preceded him, um, it's at um, it first apparently drove him crazy, and he's now gotten over it. I'm told, and I think I see it. I've now traveled with him twice. I, I think I mentioned before I went. No, I mentioned I traveled with Kofi Annan to eleven Middle East countries. This past spring, went with Mr. Bond to the Middle East, to uh, Saudi Arabia, to the uh, to the Arab summit. Um, and uh, and he is he's perfected a sort of method now, which he calls the tete-a-tete. It's uh, not that that's a vastly original phrase, but but it's it's private diplomacy. He knows now that he will never command rooms, or at least he won't now. Kofi Annan didn't in his first eight months in office either, and he's gotten over worrying about that. Instead, he's got this policy of um, of working in private. Um, and, and I've seen it now on a couple of occasions. When we went to the Middle East in the spring, he got uh, President Bashir of Sudan, who's a very, very elusive guy, um, and, and a, a man whose word is, is worth nothing, and a man who has made decisions and agreements with the UN before when Kofi Annan was Secretary General and broken them instantly. He got Bashir <coughs> in a meeting for three and a half hours. Um, uh, it was about midnight. We got through at quarter two in the morning. Uh, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and, um, and we never learned at that time. Mean, I, I, I was writing sort of skeptical at that time. I said, when he got in there, you know, but, but you can't count on Bashir to ever keep his word, and who knows if this will work any better than what worked before. Um, and then we went to Africa in, um, in August, September, and went to Sudan, went to Darfur, uh, went to Juba in the south, where there's another, there was another former war and another peace accord, uh, that may be falling apart right now. And we went to Chad, a neighbor of um, Sudan, which is suffering the spillover from Darfur. It's on the border there in the west. And then went to Libya where we saw uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi in his tent uh, uh, on the desert in, um, in Libya. And what Bond did on this trip was he got Bashir once again, uh, a private meeting twice. Uh, in Khartoum we first arrived and then again we came back and secured from him a promise to enter peace negotiations, they begin this Saturday right now, October 27th, in Libya. Um, That's, and then what he did was, he went around the region and he got other presidents, Idris Debri of Chad, to basically sort of look over Bashir's shoulder. It'll be much harder now for Bashir to break his word to Ban Ki-moon because Ban took the time to go around the region and to get signed on. By the way, one example, of if the North Korea thing is finally working now, one reason it is is you have six-party talks. You have all the countries in the region invested in the same, in the same goal. It isn't just the United States. Uh, and this was what Mr. Bond was up to. He now has the countries there invested in the United Nations' attempt to bring an heir to what is the most gigantic atrocity in the world today, uh, the genocide in Sudan. And um, in... Um, in uh, uh, In Libya, when we, uh, the reason I I said the tent, I'm so excited about it, we were going to go to Tripoli and then. Qaddafi, uh, like Fidel Castro, these, pe- these people love to make dates to get world leaders to come and either leave them outside the office for six hours grooming their heels and see them at one or two in the morning. That's the Castro stunt. Um, in Qaddafi's case, you just never know whether you're going to see him or not and where it's going to be. And the eve of our, de- or our departure from Chad, going to Tripoli, they apparently called in and said, no, no, he wants to see you in Sirte instead, which is the desert community where he's from. Um, they were all complaining. I said, great, I've always wanted to see Omar... Muammar al-Qaddafi in the desert, and that's how it worked out. And they met under a tent, the famous, you know, we all read about him in the tent. And we had our own tent. We had a little tent on the side, the press, um, no sides. We were able to watch what was going on. And then, then I was able to really see the tete-a-tete thing, which was Qaddafi um, uh, uh, was there. He had this wonderful switch, long-handled green and yellow uh, fly switch with sort of cat-o'-nine-tails thing flopping on He kept, pushing it like that the whole time, just sort of nervous gesture. Uh, and, and after about 30 or 40 minutes, um, we suddenly saw all the aides in suits get up and leave the tent and sort of mill around outside, didn't know what to do. Somebody finally brought them water or something. And, and Mr. Bon um, pulled his sofa up to the sofa of Omar, Muammar al-Gaddafi and they talked for 35 more minutes tete-a-tete, one-on-one. And he emerged from that meeting with a Qaddafi promise to stage these peace talks. Qaddafi, as you know, is very eager to to legitimize Libya, to bring Libya out of its pariah status. So the idea, but again, this is how good diplomacy works. Mr. Bond obviously knew that Qaddafi would love to be the host of peace talks. It would make him look good. Why not take those opportunities? Forget what passed in the past. You know, don't Call people names or refuse to talk to them engage them if they're, if they 're willing to be engaged and that 's what happened there and the tete-a-tete thing works so um, the uh, so, so I, th- I think uh, in trying to assess how bond is doing he 's doing very badly i think on on the reform thing, which he 's simply chosen not to pay attention to but he's he 's taking a rather dramatic chance on taking the biggest, most important humanitarian problem in the world and addressing it personally and using his prestige and the prestige of the U.N. to try to settle it. And I would just simply ask you, keep an eye on Libya this weekend to see what comes of it. But uh, if those peace talks happen, right now part of the danger is a lot of the rebel groups are saying they won't come there. So the story I would be writing tomorrow is the U.N., saying how many rebel groups they've got signed up and what the prospects are of these talks really going, going forward. Um, now, the one thing that always confronts the Secretary General um, is how close to be to the United States. It is, as I said, the most important relationship there is. Uh, Bonn is highly suspect among other members of the United Nations because it is known that he was the American choice. Um, and. He's done something, I think, relatively intelligent there. He has given the Americans something they really wanted, which is uh, UN approval, basically, of the stabilization of Iraq. The UN is now interested. Uh, even those countries which were were totally against the invasion now realize that stabilizing Iraq is in the interest of the world. Leaving it alone uh, is not. And so, um, so what Mr. Bond did was... He uh, got a Security Council resolution passed, which, would, uh, which would, uh, would expand the U.N. presence in Iraq. On the other hand, he also held this gigantic uh, meeting on climate change, and he's made climate change the subject of this year's General Assembly, which is something that Washington was very angry about. You may remember President Bush staged his own meeting in the White House that same week. Let me just finish this off by telling you that in judging Mr. Bond. Um, uh, one judgment you use uh, is how seriously does a public figure take himself and does he have a sense of humor. And I've got to say it's not obvious with Mr. Bond that he does. But, um, but he's, he's done a couple of things, and one of them I want to tell you about he just did to me ten days ago. I wrote a story when I got back from that trip to Africa um, uh, and in which I said he had a very wooden style of speaking. Now, I mentioned that he's very sensitive about criticism. And there was a reception at the residence ten days ago and he came up to me in the residence, and he, he said, I saw you said that I have a wooden uh, s- style of speaking. I should tell you also, Mr. Bond loves karaoke. At the end of all our trips, he has these karaoke nights and gets us all up to sing. And so, um, so suddenly, and I... Um, something you don't know, but a couple of you here know. I have a background as a singer. I, uh, and, and he got me in Beirut at the end of one of the trips to get up and sing to the whole group. And so I did. So he came by me with that knowledge. He came by and he said, um, I saw that you said that I have a very wooden speaking. And he began singing a song to me. And I listened to enough of it to go back the next day and to get the lyrics and figure out what it was. And it was an Elvis Presley song from a movie in the 60s called G.I. Blues, and I will finish off this comment on Mr. Bond by quoting you how the refrain goes, and this is what he was singing to me in the middle of a reception at the residence with his alarmed aides looking on, and this makes him, for me, a guy with a sense of humor. The refrain says, treat me nice, treat me good, treat me like you really should, because I'm not made of wood. (laughs) I think I've expended too much time, haven't I? I really hope to leave some time to get some questions and things. But uh, yeah, please, somebody, please. Ooh. Yes, thank right. you very much. And you give very good examples of the, in the summer of 2006, the blockade of Lebanon. Yes. if he was in the plane and he there and you were talking to the leaders of and Can you also give the situation of the government? In Libya to host. There is one another danger looming, which is very dangerous. The Turkish Parliament approved that the Turkey's armed forces can go up. To the Absolutely. PKK. It's a very potentially very dangerous for the United security and security interests of which What is Mr. Ban and the and other are doing the same patient? I, th- I think what I would tell you is that's another case where expectations are too high. What can the UN do? But You've got two member states, Turkey and Iraq, and then you've got a separatist movement in the middle of the Kurdish, the PKK. You know, what can a secretary general do there? He, he can't really step in on one side or the other. Um, and uh, I mean, all he can do is issue the kind of anodyne comments about saying, I certainly hope there's no violence here and nobody should invade anybody else. One member state should never invite, invade another member state. Uh, provocative acts on both sides. It's a very, I don't think the UN, that's where the UN really is expected to somehow calm it down and can't really act. It's got to be those two countries and it's got to be the United States. I mean, after all, we are whatever, whatever else people think about this war, we are now responsible for what is happening there. And this is yet another example of of, of that. So I think the UN... Basically, cannot. I, I don't see anything it could do to calm that situation down when you have two states fighting each other, one of them and both of them allies of the United States. I mean, it's the United States that has to step in and say, come on, guys, stop doing this. Please. We got one more, Rick? Earlier, you were talking
1: about the security of the Sure.
0: The UN failed in Iraq in 2003. I wasn't exactly sure of what the next was. All, all I meant was in, uh, the, 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 uh, when, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, the UN, that's clear. One member state cannot invade another. The UN said you can't do that, and the UN basically approved the, the coalition mission that ended that. Kosovo, I think what I would think is I think they should have done the same thing in Kosovo, and they didn't. And so President Clinton and NATO went in and did, did the good work themselves. Um, Iraq: a very different situation, where where the UN sought to, you know, sought to hold it off and had some pretty good reasons. I mean, if you if you go back to what Hans Blix was saying at that time and what he was asking for, let us keep the inspectors there a little while longer. We think maybe there are no weapons of mass destruction. Um, so in, in that case, the the UN's collective security idea did not function properly. It did not function in Kosovo, but I think the end in Kosovo turned out to be. The right one, and it did function in um, in Iraq, Kuwait, and the end turned out to be the right one. I guess I don't mean to draw any conclusion. That it's just that, that that that's that's how it's worked in three most recent incidents. I guess you could you could make a counter argument in the 2003 case that that you know, the UN isn't really hardwired to stop great powers from using using force if you really want to. So in that case, I just wasn't sure how you're viewing collective security. Should well, It should be able to, but remember, the UN's power is soft power. Uh, I mean, you said hard water, thats a good word. But soft power is always got the power of persuasion, power of influence. Uh, beyond that, no power at all. And it's—it's it's very. That's why the the person of the Secretary General and his personal influence is so important. And and Kofi Annan had a very high level of that until until Iraq in 2003, which basically destroyed for a couple of years the United Nations and I, th- I think certainly destroyed the, um, um, Kofi Annan. If I just add one sentence to that, I may have mentioned in passing there saying and, and there were certain opinionated parts of the American press that couldn't sort out which was real and which was politically motivated. Um, Kofi Annan suffered from a lot of, 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 of bully press abuse um, and it mostly was the right-wing press in this country. Uh, I have friends of mine who keep asking me, well, he is corrupt, isn't he? He's not corrupt. There was never the suggestion that he was corrupt. He stole nothing. He had a son who was 31 years old who lied to him. The son said, I lied to my father. You're not old enough to have a 31-year-old son, but I am. Uh, I wonder how many of us would want to take full responsibility for the acts of our children who confess that they lied to their parents. That was the whole Kojo Annan thing. But in the hands of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, Fox News... Uh, a paper called The New York Sun in New York, which covers this aspect very closely, The Weekly Standard. The usual suspects, you know, Kofi Annan. Would, and you had, you had serious people like Norm Coleman, a senator from Minnesota, calling on Kofi Annan to step down. First of all, he said he's a CEO. He's nothing of the kind. He's had them CEO powers. And said he's corrupt. He ought to quit. He wasn't. That was, that was the Bush administration plus its supporter press just conducting a campaign. And it really had terrible results. Um, And I think it's over now. I mean, the relationship between the U.S. and the U.N. is not just improved because Bolton's gone, Khalilzad is there, but Condoleezza Rice is serious about the U.N. And actually, she always was. She just lost the argument to Dick Cheney and John Bolton for a while. Thank you very much. I wish I could tell you Warren would have time to take questions for a little bit, but he doesn't. (laughs) So I just want to thank him one more time for coming. Get him on his way. Thank you.